Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Something incredible is happening. Over this past decade, more people than ever have been experiencing profound spiritual awakenings. Some people are discovering this path through doing yoga. Some are meditating daily. Some are learning about herbalism or trying plant medicines. Some are reconnecting with the intelligence of nature and the natural rhythms of the earth. And some are communicating with a higher consciousness. But they all have one thing in common. They are waking up to a much more radiant and connected universe. For the first time in modern history, this is no longer fringe stuff. We're in the middle of a global shift that is transforming the planet, and it's the reason we created Evolver, to support the profound awakening that is happening now. More than anything, we all need a place to meet and join forces with each other. And so, this week, we are to provide the support we all need to come together and guide each other in our collective awakening. And we aren't alone. The biggest names and most brilliant minds that Evolver has worked closely with over the years are on board and enthusiastic to do something that's never been done before and that the world is finally ready for. Shamans, energy workers, psychedelic pioneers, psychics, holistic practitioners, leading visionaries and activists have joined together to share their wisdom with you through illuminating online video courses. And that's not all. We have exclusive lectures, an ever-expanding catalog of online classes, and a community for all of the members so you can talk to thousands of others like you and meet them online and offline at workshops, in retreats, and at meetups. To find out more, go to our YouTube page at Evolver TV or sign up for announcements at EvolverAwakening.com. And let's make this happen together. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Is digital technology liberating us or imprisoning us? The standard story we've been hearing for decades is how empowering and boundary-breaking the information revolution has been, and how all of us benefit from having more access to more choices of more products and more information from more sources in more ways than ever before. Choice here equals freedom, and more freedom equals societal liberation. But a counter-narrative is emerging, one that focuses on the dark underbelly of the Internet. It talks of fake news and Russian subversion, privacy violations, Facebook censorship, and the increasing centralization of sensitive personal information. It's a tale of social breakdown into divergent and combative perspectives that don't share common ground, and see the world through entirely different lenses. That would be bad enough. But what if the destructive aspects of our information technology, the very tools we're taking advantage of right this moment as I record this podcast and you receive it on whatever portable digital doohickey you've decided to receive it through, 
What if there's an even more nefarious effect that our digital tech is having on us? One so subtle that we don't even realize it's happening. That's the question today's guest, Douglas Rushkoff, raises with great insight. Whether our digital tools have encoded within them some of the most destructive and dehumanizing aspects of our society. The notion that a person is no more than what she buys, or how well he plays according to the conventional rules of mainstream success. It's a provocative point, and Douglas is well qualified to make it. He is the best-selling author of 20 books, many of them exploring the frontiers of computer culture. From Siberia and media virus in the 90s to the recent throwing rocks at the Google bus, his new book, Team Human, is a manifesto for a post-digital society and a celebration of the human condition. I've known Douglas for decades, going back to the dot-com boom-boom days, when he was writing for the New York Times, and I was part of the startup team on the web's first multimedia music site, SonicNet. That starry-eyed, cyber-utopian era seems like a lifetime ago. In the interview, Doug makes reference to a book I co-edited back then with Randall Packer called Multimedia, From Wagner to Virtual Reality, a collection of articles by digital pioneers and the avant-garde artists that inspired them to invent the foundational parts of our digital platforms. As we discuss in the show, the vision driving those innovators was to give people real freedom, liberation from the market, from societal expectations that diminished human possibility. It's a potential that still lurks within the cyber realm, occasionally glowing brightly where its light can penetrate the surface. But if our sense of what it means to be human has been hollowed out so dramatically, is it possible that it's too late for that potential ever to be fully realized? Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. 
Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Tell me a little bit about Team Human, what you're doing with this, because this is more than a book. There's the book, but then there's the podcast, and there's a movement. There may be. There's certainly a, there's a human race out there. I mean, the main thing I'm trying to do is to help dispel us of the myth that human beings are individuals, that we should self-actualize, that evolution is some uh, competition between individuals for survival, and to promote the, the reality that evolution is a team sport, that if human beings are the most evolved species, it's which I don't know that we are, but it, if we are, it's because of the extent to which we were able to collaborate and communicate, cooperate with one another. Okay, well, I accept that as a great premise, but why does that matter? Why does it matter? I mean, why does it matter that people understand themselves as part of a bigger thing? The reason it matters is because... When you don't, when on a basic level, if you don't perceive of yourself as part of something larger, you tend to get sick and die. You know, the sense of separation from the social organism of which you've been a part uh, has the equivalent level of pain as breaking your leg. You know, losing right. your job or, or not just because of the money, you know, uh, uh, losing your social group, having to move somewhere else. Um, it's it's profound, and and it's because the connections we have to other people, the the consonance and resonance that we form with the people around us, is real. You know, it could be leveraged and exploited and manipulated, but it's also a real social mechanism that we painstakingly evolved over five hundred thousand years of social evolution. Our ability to establish rapport with one another, to make eye contact, and then to see if someone's pupils are getting larger or smaller as they speak with you, if they're nodding, if their breathing is syncing up to yours, that gets your mirror neurons to flash and the oxytocin to go through your bloodstream. I mean, that's a mechanical way of describing it, but it's the biological process of social bonding, of establishing rapport. And that's... uh, uh, one of our great strengths and defense mechanisms. It what gives it's what gives our our species power and a sense of solidarity. Right, but so let me just you know I'm just playing devil's advocate here a bit. But well, you can. But why advocate for the devil? 
I <laughs> <laughs> I saw that movie. Uh, Didn't work out. But 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 you can what you should do. I think rather than yeah. play devil's advocate, just for the sake of of oppositional conversation, is bring up your own misgivings and doubts and fears. I have so many. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's why they're so much more. You know what I mean? I would take. I would. It's fine. You can. You can. I mean, we could call it playing devil's advocate. But what it really is, and it's fine. It's let's give voice to your fear and misgivings about the sensibility with which you know you want to agree, but still there's things tugging at you. Well, I want to agree, but I want to hear you explain more right. about why there's an urgency around this, and what it is that prompted you to see this. Because everything you say about right. human connection. I think a lot of us actually, no argument, feel that, experience that, understand, value it. We have relationships, we have sex, we have children, we have, you know, people in our lives who we hug. Right. So why do I find, why do I feel the need to remind people of these essential truths? Because the supposition is there is something going on in our society at the moment that is challenging this experience that people have of being human. Yeah. I mean, there's something that's been challenging our our sense of being human and collectivist and collaborative for, you know, a thousand years. But um, we've always kind of gone back and forth between individualistic times and collective times. And, you know, you can look at the history of, of um, religion and spirituality as various course corrections along the way where mm-hmm. people say, oh, wait a minute, these death cults and slaves in Egypt and all this is really not good. We're dehumanizing all these people. Let's, you know, liberate from that and come up with a new myth and a, a myth of liberation from the narrow place of slavery. And let's give ourselves a Sabbath and a day off and uh, and laws that we're going to write down for ethical behavior. And, you know, so mm-hmm. they, they tried yeah. at various moments in history. And right now, I would argue that we've embedded the sort of most anti-human, alienating assumptions about ourselves, really the ones that capitalism taught us. We're embedding them into our digital infrastructure. So now we have a multi-trillion dollar industry that is devising platforms, and I mean like Facebook and Google and, and the other social media type platforms out there that are intentionally designed to make us behave like reptiles, to get around our frontal cortex, to evade our higher faculties, to evade our sense of compassion and connection with one another, and make us feel alone and angry and under threat, because then we're more likely to click on things. Angry people, frightened people are going to click, 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 click. And I don't think it's worth it. I understand that the more we click, the more money it puts in the hands of the ultra-rich. And I get that the ultra-rich, they feel powerless, they feel afraid, and they need more billions to feel okay about themselves. But I don't know if making those couple of hundred people feel better about themselves is worth the social, economic, political, and climate devastation that results when you are training everybody not to trust each other. I would say it probably doesn't. Probably not. Probably you not. Know? Let's and let's say, let's take that as yeah. ground zero. And let's I've start met those from there. People. I yeah. met the billionaires. Well, you actually, I mean, you more than meet them because you've been working as a media 
studies media yeah but they don't talk person. to people like me mm-hmm. i mean they did once though they, they invited did. me to do a talk uh-huh. for for what i thought was a whole you know room full of bankers or investors and mm-hmm. i was going to talk to them about the digital future and how they have to start optimizing technology for people instead of trying to optimize people for technology you know do one of my rousing come on and maybe yeah. convince one and a half of them to sort of change you know the most egregiously dehumanizing aspects of their platforms um but it turned out to be it was just five people who came into the green room and wanted me to advise them really about their doomsday bunkers. You know, how do I, you know, where do I put my bunker in, in New Zealand or Alaska? Um, how do I maintain control of my security force after the event? Mm-hmm. Because they know their money will be worthless. So how do they, you know, engender the loyalty of the guys with the machine guns? And uh, it was really shocking because I, what I realized was that here are the most the, the wealthiest and most powerful people on the planet, but they nevertheless feel utterly powerless about affecting the future. They don't feel that they can create the future they want. The best they can do is save up for the inevitable catastrophe of their own making, right? These guys are looking yeah. for, how can I earn enough money to insulate myself from the world I'm creating by earning money in that way? Yeah. You know, and that's the it's it's the easiest way of articulating the sort of the anti-human premise, you know, right? Or the, totally. And the anti-spiritual premise, right? If I, why would I want to be one with everything? If everything is going to die, if everything's falling apart, if why do I want to connect more intimately with the entirety of humanity? Mm-hmm. If people are horrible, selfish, competitive beings who want to kill me, you know, that's what, so much fear. There's so much right. fear. And it's embedded in what they're making. Yes. Right. And, and then not just unintentionally, but then intentionally. Because overtly. they're using all these algorithms, they're using all this analysis to hype up the fear, to hype up the response rate, people clicking more and more and more, getting people essentially to be hypnotized by these by these devices. Right. And it's and not that's, every time you click, another coin drops right. in a bucket. And we're not I'm not speaking metaphorically or happenstance. No, it's a that Facebook, Google, Snapchat, they are taking the algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines and right. embedding them in their news feeds and platforms. That's yeah. just real. There's a, a a division at Stanford University, big college where all the techie people go, called Captology. And the Captology division is there to it's like the word sounds to teach people how to change people's behavior using digital technology. Captology, like being a captive, right? That who came up with that word? B.J. Fogg, and that's his lab. In Fogg, behavior. Mr. Fogg Mr. is, Fogg, is creating the captive, right? And he gives a nice talk explaining program. how look, how, look how using um, digital behavior design, we can get people to go on diets, or get people to save more money, or get people to do all these wonderful things. That's not what. Once you're getting people to do stuff, the people who are really going to pay for the getting of people to do things are the marketers, are the people who are getting us to do stuff that's really not uh, uh, in our best interest. Right. And this is not what these digital tools were originally designed for. If you go back in history, right, yeah. which you do in this world, yeah, in this digital and I world, did partly as a result of the little-known book that, you know, the multimedia book that you published that has the great essays, the formative essays of what is this stuff going to do, you know, by the guys who first lick litter and Engelbard and Vannevar Bush. What are these technologies for? Exactly. And they were, for the most part, to extend the, the, the human collaborative capability. You know, we believed that, that 
human beings connected could exercise the collective imagination and create a new kind of future, you know, that we could really retrieve the most collaborative collectivist values, you know, that, that, that we ever had. That was the original intention. And if you actually go back into that history, which I did with that book, um, you discover that, in fact, a lot of the original work was done by scientists who were also like in sync with what was happening in the avant-garde arts. Yeah. And there was an awful lot of overlap in the ideas of essentially like the happenings and other kinds of, you know, generative uh, environmental art experiences that gave people the freedom to see things through different lenses right. and essentially choose their own path through the experience right. and ha find their own way of seeing as something different from other people's, but in, in a collaborative environment where everybody could be you know, part of something in a collectivist well, way. Well, it was collaborative. Everyone yeah. had terminals, not personal computers. You know, and when, right. when computing kind of moved from that networking to personal computing, to this is my computer, this is my disk space, this is my identity, this is my, yeah. my this, um, it dovetailed ever so neatly with corporate capitalism and mm -hmm. the cult of the individual, as well as the well-meaning but misguided work at Esalen in sort of self-actualization as being the at the very top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we were doing self-improvement and self-help. And I understand we needed to heal or something, but we did it as individuals rather than with that collective sensibility. Well, that sort of whole 70s, new agey thing, which is, you know, let me go find top of my mountain somewhere alone where I can go vibrate at an extremely high frequency right. and the rest of the world will take care of itself. And somehow if enough of us do it at the same time in our own, you know, happy personal ashrams, the world will somehow realign itself around the good. Right. It didn't and I, happen. No, it didn't. And, and for me, I mean, I'm so aware of that, that for me personally. Now, why are you so aware of that? Because I, I chronicled it because I witnessed it because I, in the 1994, 95, I was already seeing how we were going the wrong way because of this. And I was trying to argue, uh, about it. Where did you grow up? Me, a Queens, Larchmont, mm -hmm. you know, Scarsdale at the end. Yeah. As my dad got better jobs, but, uh, you know, I thought, we were rich until I went to Princeton and saw what rich really was. <laughs> and found it, oh, no one who goes to public school is rich according to that, mm -hmm. you know, that standard. Mm -hmm. um, but and yeah. did you have like a kind of spiritual inclination at all when you were younger? Did you grow up with yeah. any of that stuff in the in Westchester? I did. Marchmont? I mean, I got I got our our rabbi fired. I uh, what did you do? Well, I actually was so interested in in Judaism just because of what is this, you know, trying to explain the answer the big questions that I let got my parents to let me join Hebrew school early, right? Wow. So I went when I was in kindergarten. I went to the first grade class. The rabbis coming through, and and this new rabbi, and he's what was his name, Rabbi Kaiman, and. He's an interesting guy. He ended up starting a whole other movement. He comes through class and he's asking us to ask him any question about Judaism, anything at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the first week. How and old I'm you? like six or something. And I asked, I said, um, so what is God? Yeah, let's look at it. You know, here we are. It's Judaism. Yeah. I'm here. This is the rabbi. Just tell me. Good what question. Is good yeah, question. Exactly. Good question. Good answer. Good answer. It's like family feud. What is God? And um, he goes through this whole thing and he's talking about, because he's, you know, a, a kind of a secular post 
theistic Jew at that point, 1960s, you know, the, all mm-hmm. those values. And he goes through this whole thing about the order of the universe and the universe kind of leans toward, we live in a moral universe and it kind of leans toward good. And God is the part of, is your sense of what's right and wrong. And that's sort of where God is. So I was like, oh, so you're saying like God is your conscience? And he says, yes. God is your conscience. That's great. And then he's going around to all the classes. Then he's saying, God is your conscience. God is your conscience. And the parents got wind of this. This new rabbi is coming in saying, God is your conscience. And he's quoting you. Yeah, but he meant, I mean, yes, yes and no. <laughs> and and he gets fired. They got rid of him. No. Yeah, because they wanted a guy who's going to be, you know, God, Elohim, whatever. Someone yeah. a little bit more. You got to reassure tru- them better. Troublemaker at six, man. Yeah, I didn't mean it. But um, I didn't mean it that way. But I, I did find... Stuff in Judaism that then you know the other ones weren't weren't talking about. I mean, I did. I had my uh, uh, a more psychedelic uh, awakening in college, which you could call spiritual. Um, it was maybe at the time a little bit more intellectual than spiritual. You know, the way a a, a college boy, a little white college boy, experiences LSD is more. Oh, the universe is connected in all these ways. It's kind of an intellectual Buddhist kind of thing. That was kind of mine too. Well, yeah. It- where were you? Where did you do it? Princeton. What'd you do? I mean, was it mushrooms? Was window it pane. Window pane, yes. <laughs> and, Which is very clean. I mean, uh-huh. there was no voice in window pane. There's no, there's no personality to it on a certain level. Mm-hmm. It's more like a clean mirror. It's not like mushrooms or something that's like, come back to the earth, Douglas. You know? <laughs> that, was, that was more mine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's did not you, pulling you anywhere. Not did you like, go you're somewhere? killing the planet, Douglas. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. key thing. Yeah. Um, which I'm afraid was missing if you do window pane. But did yeah. you do ah, music or like you go outside? Like how was it more intellectual than spiritual in that way? Because um, I was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking, walking with my friend Walter Kern, walking around campus, looking at the architecture, deconstructing things. You know, it's like, what is this place? Power relationships in society. Sort of took us down the Foucault and the Julian Jaynes and what is consciousness? What is this? What is, you know, all that kind of, of stuff. Um, and I mean, the thing that was spiritual about it was seeing the, the branches of the trees as fingers and realizing the trees are alive and conscious beings and all that. But still, is that spiritual so much? Yes and no. It's, it's, it could be an, an opening. Awareness. That's an yeah, opening. It's an opening. Yeah. It's an opening. But I'll tell you, then, um, I had, uh, uh, some friends and even family members get, you know, super involved in a, uh, uh, what could only be called a spiritual cult later. And this was already in the in the eighties and nineties. We don't have to name names, but the the biggest and most respected spiritual intellectual leaders of my time engaged with this guy as if he were an awakened master, and basically at this guy's feet. Then slowly saw what this person was, which was just you know, guy impregnating fourteen year old girls, and you know, just really sick. The classic, the the classic yeah. guru scam. Yeah, moment. and yeah. you know, some people can try to justify, oh, well, he's from a different culture, so right. as if it's okay in India to you know, <laughs> to, to have, have sex with fourteen year old girls. Were you actually participating in the? Like some, going to some of some these ceremonies because, or whatever, yeah, prayer some, sessions. Or, or listening, sitting and listening yeah. and whatever mm-hmm. and his Lectures. version of Shaktipad and stuff. And thinking, well, if these guys, if these folks are saying that this is it, then maybe this is something. And then uh, as a result of seeing all those respected people fall for this thing um, and then go on, you know, and find out, oh, right. Oh, well, that's another scam one, but we'll keep. 
I was like, oh, none of this is real. This is uh, all friggin' BS. So I became not quite Richard Dawkins about it, but anti-spiritual. Anti-spiritual because the invitations just seem like they're so ripe for abuse. There's so many of them are anathema to the human autonomy, you know, and they're so 20th century in their setup. You know, here's a long-haired dude, whether he's playing guitar or reading the, you know, Dhammapada, you know, and we're all supposed to sit at his feet and do that thing. No, I'm into sort of leaderless movements at this point, the holacracy and connected organism, and you're in charge this moment, and she's in charge that moment, and he's in charge that moment, and what, and what would that look like? But I, I decided that if these people thought that this guy was supernatural, that there's no such thing as supernatural anymore. Right. I just said there's nothing. There's nothing. Had you actually had what you would consider like spiritual experiences in that context at all? I'm curious if you like opened that door at that time for yourself. Um, only, only truly intellectual uh, experiences. In other words, the only spiritual experience you can have in a cult situation is, okay, red pill, black is white and white is black, right? The reason that I think the guru is wrong that I should never talk to my mother and father and brother again is because of my resistance to blah, 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 blah. In other words, you do that. You have to do a profound reversal right. of everything you know. And then you, you, then you choose to believe that that's the breaking of your ego, you know, at the, uh, but it's all within this very well-defined frame that they're presenting to you. And you got to essentially play in that game. If you start, if you go the idea that that this other human being is the perfect point of light from which the order of the universe emanates, you know, then basically you're inviting cancer on a certain level. You know what I mean? You're telling your organism now to conform to this thing, but then, you know, so I'm out of that and, and get my, you know, girlfriend out of there and whatever. But then I see people using the internet in the same way. How do we do entrainment? How do we do hypnosis? How do we do neurolinguistic programming? And how do we embed that in digital platforms? Well, this is what happened a little bit later, right? So right. Let's say there was that early internet day, you know, where, you know, in the mid-90s, Douglas Engelbart and all the stuff that kind of flowed out of his Yeah, lab, but that was a beautiful time. That so was an, there, there was, was a, yeah, there was right. an infrastructure, a foundation that was laid for right. something that was very different than the controlling centralized sort of systems that are now yeah. in play. And, and right, the control centralized, you know, capitalism, education, yeah. government, and spirituality. You know, and it's not just, you know, and and people thought, you know, the cults and the religions had the same structure. You know, cults were just for people who got fed up with their religion, but then you just recreate that structure there. It's yeah. not what's well, about needing certainty and about right. needing essentially like a clear, you know, list of rules to follow in order exactly. to feel good about yourself and bad about the people you don't like. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Which is, you know, like, and, and Apple people had that about Microsoft people or whatever, but it happens with brands and everything else. Mm-hmm. But when the, when the internet emerged, it seemed to me to be part of a much, much larger movement of things that were all an alternative to that structure. Right. From fantasy role-playing, which was like theater, except without an ending. Um, to, the moose. Yeah, moves and, yeah. and infinite games, as we called them. So it's games that you play not to win, but games that you try to keep going as long as possible. Chaos math and fractals and, and uh, uh, new physics, um, 
uh, rave and uh, uh, and the psychedelic revival. I mean, there were all of these different cultural phenomena that all argued the same thing, that we live in a reality that we are designing on the fly as we go. No, and we, I and yeah. I was so in that, at that moment, I was feeling, you know, we were starting yeah. SonicNet then, we we're starting to bring music to the internet, and, you know, Word.com, if you remember what that mm-hmm. project was all about. There was a lot of this, you know, sense of possibility, right? And your writing at that time was one of the most well-articulated and clearest sort of waving of the flag of that moment. Right. Of like, here's the possibility, right? Here's where we can go. Here's how the world right. is changing. I got to say, even back in those days, I felt that you were so in that possibility that right. sometimes you'd lacked a little bit of critical distance. Oh, no, but if you look now, I mean, at the time people thought I did, but you look now, in some ways those books look positively pessimistic. Really? Because the whole end of, of my first book, Siberia, I'm saying... There's a new magazine coming up that's going to challenge Mondo 2000. Uh-huh. It's called Wired Magazine. Yeah. They have a very different approach to this. They're pro-business. They want to turn all these tools into this. They want to do And if you look at each thing, so, you know, I do a chapter on, you know, Terrence McKenna and all that. But I'm asking that what I say in the end of that last line of that chapter is, uh, is this the philosopher stone or is the philosopher merely stoned? You know, in each thing. So the people at the time, they felt that they were being looked at harshly and critically. And, you know, New York thought it was an optimistic book and San Francisco thought it was, I was making fun of these people or being critical of them, you know, because Sarah Drew from Mondo has an abortion on acid, you know, because she thinks it's going to be help her with the purge of it. And she knows because she's a witch that, that, that they did take Ergot as actually as an abortive back when yeah probably had a somewhat different kind of effect yeah who knows (laughs) but she did it hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Whoa. You know, and there's, okay. I'm there's having both, a hard time absorbing that. I'm one. finding okay. it both shocking and courageous. I yeah. mean, yeah. she li- she's walking the walk. Give me a break, man. Yeah. I w- you know, I'm going to go back to my middle class home or find a nice doctor to put me on anesthesia while I'm getting mine, you know? And she's like, I'm going to be present and there and go to a doula and have, you know, Ooh. wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, so, so there were, these were, these were, in some ways, it was a New Yorker going to San Francisco and evaluating the scene, but trying to just gently say, maybe they're right. Maybe virtual reality could be this. Maybe the net will be this. Maybe you'll be using email someday. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that book was actually canceled in 1993 by Bantam because they thought the internet would be over by the time the book was going to come out. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So then ah. Harper Collins picked it up for 94. I mean, and of course the net happened and then media virus and all these other things. So I ended up being right enough times that then they decided, okay, you know, he's an internet expert or something. Well, and you are. I wonder if there was the moment for you where you recognized that things were not playing out 
with the digital media as we had hoped back in the day. And you could start to see that the thing was turning pretty cagey and that there were these forces in play that were, I mean, it was happened, it happened sort of incrementally initially, but there was a certain point where it kind of felt like, oh man, it's fucked. It's yeah. just not working the way that the original visionaries had designed it to go. And but they didn't follow, you know, unfortunately they should have followed Ted Nelson's recommendations and, you know, had two-way linking. Two-way linking was key. No, Doug Engelbart yeah. had the same thing. Did you ever see the online system that he designed? The actual online no. system. Yeah, he gave me a demo once. Mm. So for those who don't know, you probably say it better than me. Douglas Engelbart was the uh, architect of many of the original tools that we now use in digital media, including the whole concept of an online community, of telepresence, of, you know, of, of a shared digital space that people would collaborate in together. He had this vision that he designed into the, what he called the online system, the ONL, ONS or something like that, and it had reciprocal links. And reciprocal just to links say, means that if you, if you link to someone else, they see you linking to them. And then you can track back what the sources are for what you put up there, and that there would be a, a system in place that would allow you to evaluate how trustworthy the material right. is that you're looking at. Exactly. And it was Talmudic in structure. Like, like, like the, the rabbis, when they add something to Talmud, they would say, as Rabbi Akiva told Rabbi Ashmiel, told Rabbi Moshi. <laughs> exactly. da 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 da, -da. Yeah. You know, so you're tracing back the lineage. It's like one big footnote system. It's very, it's academic in a certain way, but it's how you know the authority and the origins of of what you're what you're saying. So then you could say, well, as Hitler said to Goebbels, said to you know Jay Ogilvy, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's the direct line, right? Yeah, exactly. At least you'd know where yes. you know where it. Okay, so these uh -huh. are we're using some Hitler memes in this ad campaign, right? At least right. you know it. Well, right? yeah, it, it actually had. <laughs> You know, listen, I mean, those guys were terrible with interfaces, but the concept was really powerful. Yeah. Had it been built into the systems that then got propagated, it would have undermined the possibility of fake news. Right. Because you would be able to tell that the Russians paid for the Facebook ad, right? Right. It would be there right away. It would be transparent. There were all of these things that were part of those original toolkits that got lost. Yeah, or submerged because they weren't going to serve the market right. as well. Right. So for me, if there was a moment... Um, it was in 1995. Early. The day that Netscape went public. Oh. Now, Netscape was a browser based on Mozilla, which was developed by universities. And in the newspaper on the same day that Netscape went public, Jerry Garcia died. I didn't realize that. Yeah, oh, the guitarist for The Grateful Dead. Interesting timing. And for oh. me, it meant that, oh my... The 1960s values that were informing internet development, this really, this idea of the internet for many of us, where we're going to now retrieve the hippie values, mm -hmm. but at a time when we have the technology to realize the kind of collaboration that the hippies couldn't do, you know, and on a global scale, you know, and with some intellectual rigor. Because now we know, oh, look at the economic problems and all these things that the hippies didn't take into account. And they let guys just go and score everybody and whatever. We're going to do it. We're going to do it better. And also because we're going to use, instead of using LSD, we're going to use the internet. You know, but so what happened was we ended up changing the set and setting, if you want to use Tim Leary's term. It's a set and the setting around the internet. Instead of it being 
universities, research, and human potential. It ended up being the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, VC, and going public. And if that's the set and setting for a psychedelic substrate as powerful as as, as LSD, you're going to end up with the entirety of America having a bad trip. And that's where we are today. We are having a bad trip. And what do you do when you have a bad trip? Take responsibility for it, see that you're behind it, and then push it in a new place. So how do we take responsibility? Is again, it's not by saying, oh, change the algorithms, make the technology nicer. It's like, no, 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 no. Enhance your own vitality. Go homeopathic. How do you increase the the power, the autonomy, the sensitivity, and the sensibilities of the human organism? And the way you do that, connecting people to one another, live in real places. You start the conspiracy, which literally means conspires, breathe together. Expire is breathe, con is with. Breathe together is the conspiracy. You sit in a room, breathe <gasps> with other people, you're conspiring. And that's what, that's what Socrates and Aristotle talked about. And that's what they, Socrates got killed for. That's the conspiracy. Just mm-hmm. being in a room with other people talking is the most dangerous thing you can do in a world where they want us alone, they want us afraid of each other, and they want us responding to non-player characters on the internet rather than other human beings. Yeah. So let me, t- t- just to say, when I hear, when you say it like this, yeah. some folks might hear this and think, boy, so alarmist. Okay, you know, like, come okay. on, I use Facebook the all the time. The reason I'm alarmed is we're going to run out of topsoil in 60 years. I've got a 14-year-old daughter who in 2040, when we've gone up at least two degrees Celsius, is going to be living in a profoundly different world. I still care about the hundreds of millions or perhaps a few billion people who will die in best scenario climate change remediation uh, futures. So the reason I'm alarmist is because we are hypnotizing ourselves into an angry, solipsistic, uh, aggressive, self-interested frenzy just at the time when we need to engender the most collaborative empathetic and cooperative aspects of of the human organism. And when you bring this message to people in Silicon Valley or among the techie world in New York City, the folks who are working at Google, who are working at Apple, building these tools, working at Facebook, folks inside, what kind of response are you getting? They say the only way out is through. In other words, that they have, yes, yes, I love what you're saying, and I know I'm working at Google, but I have this project for a blockchain of all blockchains that will that will keep track of all the value that every person creates and get them paid in micropayments or blah, 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 blah. You know, or I have a new social network that I want to get everyone to. If you can just help me get everybody on it, it's going to work way better than Facebook because it's going to allow people to engage with each other and real and better and wonderful, blah, 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 blah. Um, so... Partly because they're programmers and engineers, and God bless them, they have techno solutions to the world's problems and don't generally see, they don't see the local real world uh, eye to eye, you know, skin to skin possibilities. So you don't think this is come, that the answer is going to come out of a, uh, of a computer programmer's laptop? No. I do think that, that once human beings recognize what it is they want and what are some of the healthier, better ways to move forward, that some technologists will create apps and platforms that are consonant with those desires instead of antithetical. I think that we could make social networks that instead of being 
quite literally and intentionally designed to have us see other people as adversaries could be designed to have us see the humanity in adversaries. That wouldn't be so hard. You know, so I do think we they won't fix the problem, but we don't necessarily have to be using all these technologies that make the problem worse. But the shift, the way I'm hearing you say it, is the shift is going to happen when people move away from the digital tools and are shaping that behavior through their connections with other people in meat space, in yeah. face-to-face contact, yeah. through real connection, And human this is connection. the thing, oddly enough, this is the thing that Donald Trump offered his people. You know, we like to believe, oh, look at all these red state people. They believed all this crap in social media, and that's why they're living. It's like, no. They, first, they were watching TV. They're watching Fox if they're watching anything. It wasn't digital media. And what they're getting, they get to gather with 50,000 people in a room and experience uh, a Trump rally. I mean, if you don't have real social cohesion, then you're going to flock to Nuremberg, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least no, you're- Absolutely. No, there's a real sense of visceral connectedness to somebody on the stage who's ex- saying the pain that you're experiencing out loud and your anger, expressing your anger out loud in a way that feels real to you. Right. And even if the guy is lying through his teeth, you know he's touching something that's so honest there's something real enough something that there's 20,000 other people standing here with me. Yeah. You know, and that's, it worked for Amway, you know, it worked for Sai Baba, mm-hmm. you know, and it worked, it worked for Hitler. It, you know, it works. Yeah. So for you, you went through a, a period where you rejected the spiritual thing because you were like, you know, there was the scam. Yeah. The way you're talking about it, human experience, you have a connection to what it is to be human. Right that's so nuanced and real and visceral for you at a time when many people are not consciously connected to that in the same way. And your book, Team Human, is a manifesto wake-up call to get to that spot, right? And I'm wondering, what do you account for your own sense of that connection to what it is to be human? How did that emerge for you? I wonder... I mean, I don't know that there was a moment. Certainly having a child woke up some parts of my organism that weren't awake before. You know, when, when I mean, I've had all kinds of sex and things in my life, you know, and interesting things, but... A lot of people have sex and they still yeah, go back to Facebook yeah, the next time. Yeah, I've had sex and it's been good, but the feeling of having a, a six-month-old baby on your skin you know lying on your back with this little thing sleeping on you triggers so many friggin i'm sure you know biological spiritual ego social things it's like everything's firing and i'm like whoa what's happened what's happening to my organism here you know this is more intense this is a more intense full body full soul full experience as anything so that sort of made me made me have a little more faith in my actual lived experience as an organism that it's like, Oh, there's something here. Um, that, that sex never quite opened to that extent, I guess. Cause sex still always felt like such a, um, it sounds awful, but such a kind of a, a supply glut or supply, supply dearth. You know what I mean? It was a supply demand thing. And I grew up as a kid wanting it, you know, mm-hmm. like any little American kid wanting it, wanting it, wanting it. So it was such a, 
uh, uh, still tied into the idea of getting something, you know what I mean, or winning something, and oh, good, I got one, I got, I got this, you know, I'm approved, um, or something. You know, well, you're but, a pretty goal oriented kind of guy. Yeah, you know, so you, it was goal oriented, yeah, but yeah. the baby thing, you is different. Your baby thing stops time in this different way, in a way that pot does, kind of, you know, stopping of time. So it's like whoosh, you fall into that moment. So there was that being a parent did some of that, and being a parent made me more concerned about the future of the species and the planet. Whereas before I had a kid, it's like, well, at least I got front row seats on the end of civilization. If you're going to be alive at some time, why not be alive for the end game? You know, see the fireworks. And uh, having a child made it less of an academic thing. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I've got, I've got a stake in this game. I've got skin in the game now, you know? You know, and that's and yeah, it's selfish, but I'm just being honest. No, that's, that's real. It, it that's changed a big it. Thing. Yeah. It changed it a that's little bit. That's a hugely visceral thing that happens yeah, when you have a I kid. I didn't care yeah. about myself. If I'm going to die, if I'm going to get blown up, I've gotten to do a bunch of stuff, you know. So I die, whatever. But now it's like, oh, you know, there's this child. So there was that, and it was also in trying to understand what it was that bothered me so much about the manipulation and. Uh, uh, dehumanizing impact of these technologies. It made me realize that I do believe that there's something more to human beings than our utility value. We're not just inputs and outputs, you know, and, and call it boomer-esque. But, you know, I grew up with Mr. Rogers telling me, you know, you're special just the way you are. And what does that mean? It means that I came in with dignity, that I came in with something, that I came in with, for lack of a better word, with a soul. That I have, and if you don't like a soul, because it's you know, no, forget about what they don't like. Yeah, cares about what you think. Yeah, but if Wait, people so, don't, yeah, but or if yeah. part of me doesn't, you know, because yeah. I'm worried that maybe there's no soul. What about soul? I came in with soul. You know, soul, which is the same thing as a soul. It's yeah, just, yeah, it's just, right. it's just kind of more the verb form. It's just a little more Aretha Franklin. Yeah, yeah. but it is. What is soul totally. then? If, mm-hmm. if, if, what is it? It's something else, right? It's something else. It's the, it's the spirit. It's the, it's that. And once, once I started to think of it that way, I started to realize, oh, human beings, all life, we have intrinsic dignity. You know, and it seems to me that this dignity, this soul preceded matter. It's not what what our our you know BS materialist evolutionary theorists want to argue that consciousness and awareness are uh, uh, an emergent phenomenon of complicated matter. Rather, they are the precursor to matter. They're the precursor to time. You know, and once you start with that, and you can make just as many quantum arguments to support that. You know, read your your. Uh, uh, you know, time's arrow. There's a bunch of great physics on 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 time that doesn't depend on a big bang moment and doesn't depend on consciousness coming as a, a result of evolution, but rather as this sort of driving force against entropy. And what is that? So I'm kind of there. And if that's spiritual, great. If it's non-spiritual, that's fine too. But it's it's kind of essentialist. It's it's I believe that there's a there's a dignity to these life forms. There's a dignity to a squirrel. And there's a dignity to a human, you know, and we're not in dignity to a tree and we're not aware of it. We're not, we're, we're shutting ourselves off from it because partly because we can't deal with the paradox of, you know, I kill things in order to eat. You know, it's the, all, why all the old original coyote myths and all that stuff, you know, why all that came out. Be, but it's, it's better to face 
the pain and tragedy of life, the paradox of life. That's what human beings, that's what we're uniquely capable of doing. It's what computers can't do. We can embrace paradox. We can sustain ambiguity. And we can even learn to enjoy it as sort of our essential feature. And once we're able to do that, then we can look at the hard work of, well, how do we make nature less cruel? How do we make this everything kinder? Because now nature is aware. Once we're aware of what we're doing, now it's a matter of, oh, let's try to make this as kind as possible. And instead, we became aware and just afraid. How do we just protect ourselves rather than how do we how do we embrace one another? Well, there's this kind of materialist worldview that you know encompasses us that you know, somehow only serves part of what it is to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And it shies us away from things that seem on the surface difficult or scary because we don't have direct experience of them in our own lives. That is to say, you and I did not grow up on farms where we raised our own meat and had a relationship with the animal before we slaughtered it mm. and then ate it and had a sense of the cycle of nature of which we are a part. There is a sense of, you know, you go to the supermarket and that meat you eat comes wrapped in right. cellophane and it's so clean. Clean and dead. It's clean and dead and ain't got no blood and you don't have to do nothing for it. And so that feels very like, on the one hand, antiseptic, but also somehow civilized and safe and appropriate. And so there's this whole aspect of what death brings into our awareness that gets shunted off to the side right. in our experience. And somehow it's almost as if the, that kind of commodification, which is part of the, you know, this leads to a sort of the, the materialist idea, leads to this kind of commodification, leads directly to this notion that computers are essentially the, the essence and expression of the essence of what it is to be human. That it's just, mm-hmm. it's thinking. Right? It can be smarter than us. Because it is thinking it's smarter than us, one day it may replace us. What are we really but these right. thinking machines? Right? Because there's this this notion that we're that the real thing about being human is ultimately about being disembodied right. and outside of the cycles of life. Right? So we're kind of in this weird space now where computers mm. are playing into a lot of, you know, frankly, right. disconnected disembodied experiences. Right. And that's partly, I mean, and that, again, that that's consonant with certain spiritual traditions. The sort of Gnostic, let's get out of the body. I'm going to rise, as, as Terence used to say, rise from the chrysalis of matter into pure consciousness. You know, it's a, what the Russian cosmists were arguing that we could do. And they met with our spiritual teachers at Esalen in the, in the two-track diplomacy conferences of the 1970s and 80s. So it, it, it's embedded this idea that the, the body is disgusting and all. It's part of the Puritan ethic, came right from the East Coast, right through America to the West Coast. And if we look at ourselves that way, then yeah, getting away, getting out of body is the only way, is, is the only path. That sort of Ray Kurzweil, get Google to build me a home for my brain before I die, you know, <laughs> belief. But I don't yeah. think there's anything there. And I, I think that it's denying. So the, let, let's just stop for a second. Yeah. Why do you think there's nothing there? What do you think is empty about this? Because I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I don't think that computation and consciousness are the same thing. I don't think there's an awareness. I don't think that they're alive. I don't think that they're anything. Well, it sort of does reduce our understanding of what it is to be human to just the mind and kind of leaves out the heart and the gut. 
Right. Right. And, and the, how and do the you... connective tissue, which turns out is conscious too. Right. Right. No, it's all conscious ultimately. Right. right? But there's a sense of sort of giving primacy to the mind, reducing the importance of heart, reducing the importance of gut feeling. Right. Right. And, and it's, but it's also reducing the mind to its computational ability as right. if the human mind is a calculator and it's not, it calculates, but it does other stuff too. Yeah. So this was actually going back in the history piece. Uh, Douglas Engelbart started out devising all these original, you know, online digital media tools as a response to the notion that computers are just big giant brains. Mm. Right. And he was looking at this going, you can use a computer to do something else to extend the capabilities right. of a human being. They can augment what right. it is to be human. You can enable collaboration through these quote unquote giant right. brains that in and of themselves will never be more than just, you know, able to do what we tell them to do. Right. I mean, and he was trying to really create an alternative to what Norbert Wiener was talking about. Because Norbert Wiener was saying, well, once we have these feedback devices, they're going to replace us. They're going to challenge us. They're going to start using us. He wrote, you know, the human use of human beings. And so he really saw that we were going to end up in the programmer be programmed universe that I'm describing. And, and Engelbart was saying, well, no, 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 no. Instead of replacing us, let's augment us. Let's extend human capability through this. So it was in, rather than artificial intelligence, it's more about intelligence augmentation. And it was a much friendlier pro-human view of how to do this. So then you come up with a mouse to extend the hand and a pointer and the eyes and the this, you know, looking at it as a, a, you know, it was a much more empowering vision of how these things would work. Well, and those are still the strongest attributes of the digital media that are enabling us to do certain things to connect with, like, for instance, I'm sure like Team Human's podcast is reaching people, right? right? By uh, retrieving radio, in the digital context, right? It's well, radio show basically on online. Yeah. But, so it's interesting, and then everybody's doing that now. Everybody's doing podcasts. I love that, but it's 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 reifying an older medium. You know, it's it's well, it isn't. So it isn't what we're using it for. It's kind of it isn't. It isn't because on the one hand, yeah, we're recording something like a radio show. It's the same format as a radio right. show, et cetera, et cetera, like that. But unlike a radio show, I don't have to get a terrestrial broadcaster to beam right. a signal that might only reach a certain number right. of people in the New York metropolitan area if I'm lucky enough to get into that really you know, expensive right. real estate. Absolutely. Instead of radio as medium, it's radio as content. You know, and that's what McLuhan was talking about, that, that, that in a new media age, the prior media become the content of the next medium. So what's the content of the internet? It's Netflix and podcasts. Or whatever comes next. Yeah. So the question eventually it'll find what it is. Eventually it's going to find something else. Yeah. And I feel like it might the, be some VR AR who's a dicky thing. Right. If we don't blow ourselves all up to smithereens. Yeah. Or starve ourselves to death in climate change. Right. That's more likely. Yeah. But of the two, you yeah. know, either one of those could happen. It seems to me that we're still in such an early stage of what the digital media internet thing is all about that there's a whole nother level of expression and maturation that could come once a generation grows up understanding how thoroughly messed up the tools we're currently using are and somehow for one reason or another abandon them or make them illegal or right. well i think it's it's basically you know alexandra ocasio cortez's generation who will get this because what they're understanding is oh 
the internet is playing one song. The song it's playing is extractive corporate capitalism. And that doesn't mesh well because the internet is going to keep doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it until there's nothing left. The internet turbocharges capitalism. So we can't have capitalism anymore. It's not even that capitalism was such a problem, although I think it was. It's not just that. It's that capitalism turbocharged with digital technology is incompatible with life. Yeah. So is there a progressive policy platform around technology that is waiting to be discovered and articulated? The way that say, I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly like a policy like yeah, the, but it would the be, Green New Deal or, or Medicaid It would be though. It's kind of Medicaid the Green New Deal all. is the closest to it. It's not, you don't, right now, it's not that we have a problem with our technology policy. It's that our technologies are running on top of another operating system. You know, this corporate capitalism operating system that Zuckerberg and Sergey and nobody is acknowledging is even there. They think that's just nature, the way things are. No, you don't have to do that. That's a way of running an economy. You know, but we could we could run an economy very differently. We could optimize an economy for distribution or for the velocity of for the velocity of money rather than the extraction of capital and all these that's all I was writing about in that in that other book, Throwing Rocks the Google Bus, is you could program any kind of economy you want now that we're aware that economy is an operating system. Yeah, I mean, at, at at the very least, you know, the laws that we live with are framing what the digital guys are designing, right? And so, for instance, the laws allow them to own our personal information. Right. That's a legal thing. That was right. The trick is that a lot of the, what used to be law is now embedded as code, you know, <laughs> so it's it's trickier. But yeah, if we had a functioning government, we could regulate the Internet in certain ways that would mitigate some of the some of the damage. And you, there's some hope when I look at, uh, you know, what happens in, in Europe and how they still have some countries there that have the power of regulation or governments that care about their people. So they, you know, have some privacy laws and the right to be forgotten and some other things that, you know, it's possible that, that you know, Germany will just outlaw Facebook. They're just like, you just break, they're a bad actor. They break laws, they break rules, they lie about it. Then they try to distract people with, with made up stories about George Soros. It's like, this is nuts. This is nuts. They are bad. Yeah. Yeah. So what do people do under these circumstances you've written the book team human you lay out some well first they concepts. read the book they really yes. should you know buy it borrow it you know steal it it's a short read it's like it's it's i wrote a book that's what i do i write books and i wrote a book to function the way books used to work which is that the reading of the book is an experience so you're not just reading it to get the data from the words on the pages, but you're actually, the reading of the book is the reading of the book, right? You're actually doing this thing. Like think about when you, when you make love or something because you just want to make love, right? That you're only doing it for that, not to make money, not to get them to like you, not, but because of that actual thing, that's, you know, why do you go to a musical? You know, why do you, it's for that. So if you think about it that way, it's like, oh, I'm taking the reader through an experience, basically through almost a psychedelic trip to say, here we go. I'm going to take you on a journey. Let's look at where we actually come from and what happened and where we can go and all that. So and and to do it in a way that actually works. And I've written 20 books. I know how to do this. So um, that's my way of conveying what it is. Uh, is by taking someone through this two or three hour experience, and which if is you all were it to, takes. And that's a powerful experience to have. 
If but, you wanted to, right. if you wanted to describe where you expect somebody to end up right. at the end of that, where, where would I that be? I think they end up is pulling their head out of the book and looking for the others. There are other people with this sensibility. There are other people. When you walk down the streets of New York, there's other people who are not looking at their phones and are looking around for for conspirators for people who are woken up. It's like we're walking around in body snatcher land, only it's okay to be exposed. It's okay to stand up and get, here I am, where are you? Are, you know, I am, are you? That used to be for either the gay, a gay, it was a gay show, I think. I mean, now it's just, are you alive? Yeah, I'm alive, I'm thinking, I'm conscious, are you? Um, making eye contact with people, uh, uh, finding people in your town, connecting to others. It's like this other way of moving through much of your day is available to you. And I try to do that. And it, it changes everything. It really does. It makes Facebook and vibrating notifications. That's not real. That's them. That's them. It's like a they live glasses or something. You know, you start looking at the world and you go, oh, what's real and what's not? What's real is the other little flesh people around. You know, it, it's not the notifications coming in on your iPhone. With your family, do you enforce a media fast? Once a week, take a Friday off? Or a Saturday. I mean, Sabbath is a great thing. I don't enforce anything. I encourage you know, I mean, we don't bring our devices upstairs. We have two floors. So that's like bedrooms versus public space. So, you know, and after dark, we turn off the screens. You know, and they partly. stay downstairs, not in the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the main thing. I mean, I don't, we're not having an issue. You know, I guess my daughter's only 14. So maybe it's yet to come. But a lot of them have had it by then. I mean, my daughter doesn't do Instagram because she thinks it's a manipulative trap, you know. Um, and she sees the way girls are posing on that thing. And she's like, oh, screw that. You know, I don't even want to get, don't get me started on that. You know? Um, what about getting outside? What about nature? Yeah. Well, that's why I don't live in the city partly, um, was to, to have some alternative to the rectilinear, you know, reality of New York and everything digital, you know, that sort of binary. So, you know, so we live in a small town. I mean, and that's a privilege at this point, you know. Yeah, I went there because it cost one third per month to live there compared to here, which really helped. That meant I could write books that don't sell as opposed to having to go work for an advertising agency or something and stay here in the city, you know, because I'm, a, I'm, I'm an influential writer, but that doesn't mean I make a lot of money at it. You know, not enough to do, to live the way writers used to live. You know, and you get an Upper West Side apartment and hang out with your intellectual friends and lecture at Columbia. Sorry. Isn't there a little scene up there, though? I thought like some other folks in the neighborhood who you, like, you could hang out with and you feel like you're part of a, like, a bunch well, of people who are, where like, I am, who are switching off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, where I am, by between Yonkers and Dobbs Ferry, um, there are people, you know, who've moved up for similar reasons. You know, we've made our choices and said, okay, I'm not going to get to go, you know, to Bowery Ballroom on Saturday nights, but, you know, that's all right. I mean, I went a bunch, um, and 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 a lot of them are gone. The great clubs, that's for sure. You know, no, so, it, ain't, it ain't what it used to be. No, so yeah, I'm not going to go to CBGBs or something anyway, um, or Max's or the place. I mean, it's from my era, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not. I, I think it's important that people realize that there's not. We're not like, oh, look what this person's doing now. I'm going to do what they do. I wouldn't want 
people to use my life as an example of appropriate living because I'm on, on a reckoning now myself. I mean, I make a lot of my money and a lot of my influence flying around and giving talks to people. And how can I be part of Extinction Rebellion and fly to a conference in Rio to talk about climate change? Well, you know, we're all living the contradictions here. Yeah, we are. We are. We all are. Which is why I can't say, oh, you know, I mean, I'm using uh, an iPhone now that has slave labor in it, you know, and and I'm using servers that are polluting the environment. So I'm kind of looking at this book and book tour as kind of a last hurrah. And then I want to try to publicly kind of conform as best I can to some of my own ways of understanding the world. I want to be local. You know, and I've had as much fame as any person is entitled to. You know, if I don't get to, you know, there's plenty of voices, plenty of smart people. I've influenced a lot of really smart people with my stuff. I see articles, whether or not they're crediting me for it, for it I can go, oh, there's, I've pollinated this, I've pollinated that. And it's like, that's great. Let it go. Get off the stage. You know, that's why I have a, a podcast now, because a podcast is for me to give a platform for other people and their ideas. Are you working on a new book? No, I don't think I'm doing another book. Really? Yeah. This is it? I think so. 20 and done? Yeah, 20. No, just 20. The, the comic books? Maybe I could do comics. That could do some be great fun. comics. Do a graph, graphic novel. I'm thinking to just start doing some theater. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, to do theater. I want to do sort of a new version of the, the if you're a theater person, you'll know what I mean. When like the old WPA, Clifford Odets. You know, what is the waiting for lefty? Uh, which is a pun of a title, waiting for lefty. Lefty, get it? Lefty. Um, uh, what, what, what is, and it was all stealth communism, right? So what is the new form? So I'm looking at sort of some, creating scripts for local theaters that are stealth lefty. You know, you know you, get people in red state community theaters doing these plays that have, you know, deeply labor-oriented themes or well, about mutual this. aid. and Oh, I love it. But this is like and real people. And for free. And, and, I'm sorry? Give them for free so they don't have to pay royalties and all that so they're more apt to want to do them. Real people in real rooms with other real people right. saying words out loud yeah. together. And, and, and they're so skeletal that they're utterly open for interpretation. So then doing one of these plays hopefully will make people realize that thing you realize when you're tripping, that anything can mean anything, that it's all set and setting. It's all how we frame it. Oh, I'd love to see this. Yeah. Awesome. Doug, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing, you know, helping, uh, you know, the recovering cult addicts of Western capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm raising my hand. I am one. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it I is. am. Are you? Are you? Yeah. I mean, sorry, we didn't know neoliberalism was just everywhere. We had uh, no way of knowing. I thought I was so radical in the midst of my neoliberalism. I thought, man, we're like breaking all the rules. And guess what? Right. Other rules were written on top of that. Exactly. That, we like, were refining the underlying systems without even knowing it. Yeah. That's how good they were. But we woke up in time. That's why we're here. Yeah. I want to thank Douglas Rushkoff for being a guest on the show, and thank you, too, for joining us. If you want to follow Doug, the best way to do it is through his website, rushkoff.com. You're not going to find him on Facebook. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. 
and our interstitial music are tracks by the human experience. Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.